Welcome to the Clinical Appraisal Podcast. My name is Ian Lane, and on this show, we discuss the science and theory of nursing. I'm a critical care nurse and PhD student in nursing science focused on measurement and methodology. Importantly, nothing I say constitutes nursing advice. This is education only. And if you want to get in touch with me, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. If you want to donate to the show, links are in the description. And otherwise, like, comment, subscribe, and share the show if you enjoyed this episode. Today, I have with me Dr. Jackie Nickpore from, well, originally from the University of Pennsylvania, and she's on to some uh, additional fantastic opportunities from here, which I'll let her tell you about. Um, Jackie, why don't you start by introducing yourself to the audience? Who are you? How'd you get involved in nursing research? And then what are your main interests? Sure. So thank you so much for having me, Ian. And uh, I, like you said, I'm Jacqueline Nickpour. I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania in the School of Nursing in the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy Research, or CHOPPER for short. Uh, which my husband loves to say in an Arnold Schwarzenegger voice. <laughs> but I am really interested in primary care research. A lot of my work is on how nursing care delivery in primary care can help improve patient outcomes after a hospital discharge. So I look a lot at 30-day readmissions, ED visits, uh, post-discharge mortality, things like that, that I'm really interested in how when a patient gets out of the hospital, can we prevent them, one, from going back in the hospital, but also ensure that they're getting all of their needs met in, in the community. So a lot of that includes focusing on social determinants of health, um, integrating behavioral health into primary care, and then really what is a nurse's role in, in doing that and delivering that care. So the, the center that I work for now, it has done a ton of research on nursing care delivery in hospitals and other settings and looked at things like safe staffing ratios and clinician burnout and how all these things impact patient care. And I'm really interested in looking at those in community-based settings. So particularly primary care, but also schools and home health and things like that. So it's a really exciting time to be, be doing this work. There's a huge push towards community health and building health equity by a lot of national organizations. So, so there's a lot of interest. And I would say to get into your question of how I got interested in research, I, uh, from both my personal and clinical background, have always kind of seen a lot of the gaps in our healthcare system. I, uh, Growing up, my my dad was really chronically ill for most of my life. Uh, he originally came to the U.S. as a refugee from Iran in 1979 and uh, didn't always have access to a ton of great resources. There was a huge cultural barrier, and he ended up getting diagnosed with a lot of conditions that could have been preventable, diabetes, heart disease, uh, sleep apnea, just all things that really made him struggle in his quality of life, prevented him from working a lot of the time. Uh, he was hospitalized multiple times for, for surgeries and things like that. And I just remember being, you know, at home on the weekends and my parents would wake up super early to call the insurance company to get a part of his CPAP machine replaced and mm. insurance companies would deny it or trying to get an appointment or 
finally getting an appointment, but then not being able to take off work to get there. And I just, I think from a very young age, alongside growing up in the era of healthcare reform, not allowing insurance companies to deny people for pre-existing conditions before, all of that really kind of shaped my interest in healthcare. And I probably couldn't phrase it as well as I can now, but I just knew that something was wrong. So I went into nursing just thinking that I could potentially make a difference in other people's lives who were really sick. But also I kind of in the back of my mind had this sentiment of like, I want to do more than, than just working bedside. And I say just kind of in quotations because there's obviously nothing wrong with folks who do that their entire career. And that's amazing. But I knew I wanted to make some sort of system level change. I just didn't know what that was going to look like. So went to nursing school, didn't really find like a clinical setting or population that particularly spoke to me. I really, you know, I liked working in pediatrics and I liked working in psych and I ended up working in both of those areas later on. But where I really found like my love and and my, my kind of home in nursing was in community health and in research. So I got really involved in different research projects. I worked, I did a work study as an RA on several community health research projects with faculty members and just really found myself enjoying it. You know, I loved going out to communities and working with people and working with local uh, community-based organizations to help people get what they needed to give people access to, to exercise spaces, to educating people on simple affordable, healthy recipes. Uh, I really liked being a part of that. And I felt like it was a really strong compliment to my traditional nursing education. And through that, through some summer internships that were, again, pretty like non-traditional in, in the clinical space, but still used my nursing skills, I just realized that I wanted to pursue a career in research and ended up with the support of some of my mentors applying for PhD programs a couple of years later. And just, it's been kind of on that road ever since. And I love it. It's a lot of work, but I couldn't imagine doing anything else. That's fantastic. A long answer to a short question. No, that was great. Now, did you go in knowing that research was one path you thought you might do, or did you originally have your sights set on maybe I'll try to change the system in some other way? Like, was I really knew. I don't think I really was able to kind of fully understand it. I just remember being in nursing school as an undergrad and thinking like, okay, I don't really feel myself in any of these different ways in any of these different settings. I knew I was interested in health equity. And we talked a little bit about social determinants of health. And I was like, okay, that's something that I'm interested in because I feel like I could prevent people from going into the hospital if we could meet their social determinants of of health needs that aren't being met otherwise. So I don't think at the time we really had the language that we have now around health equity and social determinants, but I just remember hearing a little bit about it and thinking like, well, why are we so focused on treating people in the hospital when they're sick instead of doing what we can to prevent people from getting sick in the first place. And, you know, that thinking, I think, kind of evolved and and grew over time into the work that I'm doing now, which is looking a lot at primary care delivery models and, you know, meeting those kind of 
full spectrum of medical, behavioral health, and social needs. But at the time, I it was really the thing that I think just stood out to me the most. And I really did a decent job in the last year or two of nursing school of kind of pursuing those opportunities and thinking like, okay, I think this is along the lines of where I see myself going in the future, but I definitely didn't have the language for it that I do now. So it took a lot of time and it wasn't a linear pathway, but it ended up in the right place. That makes sense. That's really interesting too, because I feel like most nurses who end up being interested in systems level change in healthcare tend to start seeing those things when they're out in practice at the bedside, let's say, and they're noticing these trends in, you know, people aren't getting their needs met or they're being, for example, discharged. And then who knows what's happening to them? Are they being followed up in the community? Um, are they being yeah. readmitted, you know, fairly recently thereafter? But you actually had these insights back in nursing school. I assume that your uh, story of your father's health really played a part in your being able to see that. Oh, so early. absolutely. It played a, it played a huge part and, you know, thankfully it's doing a lot better now, but it was a huge thing that really impacted me. And I don't think I realized until later on that a lot of the things that I was seeing with my dad, I was also seeing with my patients. Mm -hmm. I would see patients who, you know, when I first started, I worked in pediatrics on a GI endocrine and metabolism unit. And we had a lot of patients who would come in with newly diagnosed or previously diagnosed type one diabetes. Uh, they'd be in diabetic ketoacidosis and we would get them straight from the ED and, and work with them until they were more stable and try to keep them out of the ICU and get them off of an insulin drip and all of that. And I just remember seeing patients who had the same diagnosis, you know, diabetes was a common one, but there were also others. And, and I would see patients who came from largely white middle-class families, you know, go on, be successful in managing their chronic illness. They had a ton of family support and they would do really well. And I would never see them again, or at least I'm assuming they did really well because I never saw them again. And then I would see patients again with the same diagnosis who largely were from black and brown communities, lived in Philadelphia, which is where I was working and would be readmitted time and time again for conditions that could be managed outpatient, but they just didn't have the resources or the ability to do that. And I think one of the things that really stuck with me was hearing other nurses, other white nurses, especially say things like, well, why don't you just take care of your kids? And this isn't a hotel. Like you can't just drop your kids off here and leave. And I would be thinking to myself like, okay, this is a patient who is sick. They have three other siblings. They are children of a single parent who works multiple jobs just to keep food on the table and keeping the lights on. And you have the audacity to not even knowing them or having ever walked in their shoes to make judgments about what they're doing or how they're caring for their children when you have no idea what's going on outside the hospital in their day-to-day -day life. And so that was a thing that really stuck with me and made me think like, wow, we as a healthcare system and we as clinicians just really set these patients up to fail because we don't offer the resources that they need to to stay healthy and to stay out of the hospital. Right. It's sad to hear that a little bit because one of the things I think that separates nursing from other healthcare disciplines is our focus on the contextual factors. That's obviously a generalized claim and there are those of us I know not us per se but those in the field who don't necessarily think about those different complex yeah. 
you know, interpersonal and contextual factors like within the family, um, occupationally, do these, do these folks have the resources to actually care for their kid the way that this person hopes that they can just do? Um, so, it, you know, I think that most of us, hopefully, understand that these things are complex and people are struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always important to have folks like you who are able to really operationalize that and go, let's look at these other things logically and try to figure out how to deal with them like for example, in the research end. So kind of tying this experience that you've had into your work, where did you kind of begin your research and then kind of where are you at now with um, your current projects? Yeah, so when I first started my PhD program, I through some internships that I had had in nursing school and just experiences that I had been exposed to, I, you know, with my background, my interest, I was really interested in how can we expand access to high quality primary care for patients who needed the most, you know, I had done some work on school nursing services, and a lot of times for kids, especially in Philadelphia, uh, who may be from low income working class families and may not have the time or the ability for a parent to take off of work and take their child to a wellness visit or even a sick visit. And so school nurses a lot of time become the folks who really are those kids only connection to the healthcare system. So I had gotten involved in some of that work in nursing school and then going into my PhD program after I'd taken some time and and worked clinically full time, I was really interested in kind of building on that and saying, okay, how can we expand access to healthcare for kids and families and parents who, who need it the most? And so I became really interested in nurse practitioners. You know, I was interested in nursing care delivery and how we can improve it. And I was interested in primary care. And so at the time, it made sense to focus on NPs because I thought, well, those are the nurses who are in primary care, are nurse practitioners. And I was really interested in, okay, if we know that NPs are delivering high quality care, especially in rural and underserved communities, how can we support them in delivering the best care? And so I became really interested in some of those contextual factors like uh, state level scope of practice or mm. a nurse practitioner clinical work environment and how those sort of systemic policies can support or impede high quality care delivery uh, in the primary care setting. And so I was really interested in looking at nurse practitioner scope of practice and some of the barriers to it. A lot of people would ask me like, oh, well, are you an NP? Like, is that why you're interested in this? And I would say, well, no, I'm a nurse who has seen patients be readmitted time and time again because they don't have the access to primary care or specialty care that they need at home. And I'm interested in improving our health system in that way. So that was something that I I kind of thought a lot and became really interested in that. And learn that one of the barriers through, you know, some systematic reviews that we did, one of the barriers for NPs to gaining full scope of practice was this concern by policymakers, by lobbying organizations, and by those in health system leadership positions, that there was this fear of if NPs have full scope of practice, there's a concern that they will overprescribe opioid medications for patients in chronic pain and contribute to this ongoing opioid overdose crisis. And it was so interesting to hear that because, you know, like you said, as nurses, we are really 
dedicated to caring for the whole patient and mm. not just treating a disease with with medications. We're really thinking about, okay, how can we address all of the things that are happening and, and care for you as a human and your family and your caregivers? And I, you know, learned through, again, just reading the evidence and seeing that there really wasn't much there to support this idea that NPs are overprescribing opioids or will overprescribe opioids. And so that became my dissertation. I looked at data from the Veterans Health Administration where NPs since 2016 have had full scope of practice and looked at to what extent are physicians, NPs, and physician assistants prescribing opioid medications to chronic pain patients, either overall and in high doses, what exceeds the CDC's recommended limit in morphine milligram equivalents, and then for, for long periods of time, like over 90 days. And what we found was that, no, that NPs are actually less or had lower odds of prescribing an opioid medication and didn't have any significant difference in how often they were prescribing uh, high doses or long-term opioid medications. And in fact, that some of the concerns in, oh, here's how many opioids NPs are prescribing actually came from grouping all the nurse practitioners in a data set together, including those who work in hospitals, in ORs, in EDs. And of course, opioid prescribing in those settings is going to be higher for a post-op patient or a patient in severe pain than it is going to be in primary care. And so when you actually broke down some of the methods that were contributing to this, this fear and did a more, uh, I, I don't want to say correct analysis, but a, a more balanced assessment of what these prescribing patterns were, you you kind of saw those differences go away. So that was a big part of my dissertation. Uh, I became really interested again in, in looking at new models of care in primary care, which today is still my main focus. And coming to my postdoc, I kind of expanded beyond nurse practitioners and, and looked at, okay, well, again, what are the larger models of care, you know, who are the people in these new team-based care models that are delivering primary care and how can we optimize their usage to improve the health outcomes of patients living with chronic illnesses? And so I began looking at different models of care that utilize registered nurses, that utilize social work, look at community health workers and thinking about, okay, well, what do these models of care look like and how do they differ for, for different patient groups? So, so for example, so a lot of my work now in my postdoc is trying to identify what the roles of a registered nurse in a primary care practice are. Uh, most primary care practices will hire a registered nurse and have them on staff, but a lot of the times they are utilized in non-nursing functions. So there's evidence that over 50% of a registered nurse's time in primary care is spent doing things like stocking exam rooms and billing for physician services and scheduling patient appointments and doing intake and triage and things that are important, but don't really make the greatest use of their clinical skills. And with team-based care kind of becoming the norm in primary care with the ongoing primary care provider shortage, and with a lot of health systems buying up smaller primary care practices and making these huge 
you know, kind of conglomerate systems that that serve thousands of patients, you really need folks to be, again, practicing to the top of their license, whether they're an NP, an RN, another professional, and making sure that they're contributing and you're getting the full value out of what you're paying this member of the labor force to be there. So I've been looking a lot at what is it that RNs are doing in primary care, uh, especially in community health centers that are largely nurse driven. And how can we harness them into improving patient outcomes and reducing inequities and hospitalization? So that's been a big part of my work. I've also been really involved in a clinical pathway at our local health system at Penn, which is called Thrive, and which is a transitional care pathway, one of the first transitional care pathways that is specifically designed for patients who are insured by Medicaid. So we get patients who come into one of the hospitals that are part of our our program. They get flagged in the EHR if they're Medicaid insured and they're eligible to participate. And we get them on our charts. We send 30-day nursing home care. We send social work out to see them, assess the home environment, you know, see if there's any unmet social needs like a piece of medical equipment or food vouchers or whatever it may be, or transportation to get to a primary care appointment or scheduling a primary care appointment. We really wrap our arms around these folks and, and work with them to say, you know, okay, how can we help this person get their needs met? And so I've been looking at what are our outcomes of patients who have different types of medical illnesses, and then those who have, in addition to their medical illnesses, have serious mental health conditions like major depressive disorder and mm. bipolar disorder. And thinking, okay, how can we adjust our model of care to best support these patient needs? So it sort of is the intersection of like health services research and health equity research and a little bit of implementation science kind of sprinkled in there. Uh, but really I'm focused again on, on models of care delivery and then to a lesser extent, but but supporting that, how can we adjust payment and reimbursement to again support these new models that, that meet patient needs? It sounds like you have, first of all, it sounds like there's a plethora of research avenues for you. And we- Oh my gosh, so many. Yes. And I think for those nurses and other healthcare providers listening, we're all aware that there are so many different ways that the system needs to be adjusted and amended. Um, but I want to return to one of the comments you made, I think is fascinating about how are we utilizing and in some cases underutilizing RNs in primary care? Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm just going to speculate on something. You can tell me what you think about this. But I've long thought that one of the key sort of problems in primary care is that, and keeping in mind that I know virtually nothing about primary care except for my own ex uh, experiences as a patient, um, is that, you know, healthcare practitioners like physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs are utilized in a very specific, a very important but also a very niche way. And they have a very limited amount of time with people. And in the time that they do have with people, their role is going to be really relegated toward diagnosing diseases and prescribing for those diseases or ordering tests to identify those diseases. But then when it comes to like coaching patients about how to implement those things into their life and how to educate them and improve their health literacy and 
I feel like the coaching element is one way that an RN could work at the top of their license. One of, I'm sure, a multitude of different ways. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. I think there's so much space for for a nurse to be more ingratiated into patient care in a primary care clinic or any ambulatory setting, really, than, than what is often the case. And you know, you bring up the fact that providers' time is often very limited with patients. And the way that our billing system is set up is that in most cases, you have a 15-minute appointment to, to see a patient. You know, we exist in a very fee-for-service, volume-based healthcare system and payment system that emphasizes getting as many people in the door as possible in a given clinic day and doesn't really focus as much on how can we deliver the best care possible to, to keep these patients from having a poor health outcome. So, so outcomes-based kind of payment and delivery systems, value-based care is a thing that I think about and is ingrained in my work quite a bit. And because of that, because you've, especially for patients who, who do have a lot of unmet needs, who are from a historically mar- minoritized community and face a lot of health inequities, you don't really have the time and the space in that 15 minutes, or even in many cases in a 30 minute appointment to be able to kind of check all of those boxes and say, okay, here's how we're going to get these different needs of yours met. And, and so there's a huge opportunity for, for nurses to kind of step in, take some of that patient education role on, but then also there's other kind of necessary activities that are care improving, like doing a medication reconciliation, you know, Mm. especially in a primary care setting, you might have a patient who sees five different specialists for five different chronic illnesses, and they've got all these meds that are on their regimen and no one knows about all of them. And there might be some serious drug, drug interactions that are not being seen because no one's communicating with each other. Uh, there might be issues with getting one prescription filled or an insurance issue. And so doing that med rack and, and working with patients and saying, okay, are you taking each of these different meds? Are you able to fill these meds? How can we help you to, to get these meds that you need filled? So that's a big part of it is, is the med rack. And then another huge thing that, that comes up a lot in my work is the lack of care coordination, you know, kind of on that line of thinking. Especially if we if we think of primary care as being the center of our healthcare system and everything kind of runs through that, that's not really what it looks like on a day-to-day basis. And so to have someone kind of in place to call up a specialist on the phone and say, hey, you know, are you seeing this patient? What's going on with them? To follow up with patients and get notified when if they've been hospitalized and and work with I've seen models where a primary care registered nurse will literally go into the hospital and work with the patient and work with the clinic staff to say, okay, here's how we're going to set up this transitional care plan for this patient to discharge home safely and get everything they need met. And that's for a lot of places that that use it, that's hugely successful in keeping folks out of the hospital. So, so that's another piece is just the many, many different ways in which you can have someone coordinating care and 
bringing all those different pieces of a patient's health puzzle together. And that includes for, for social needs too, you know, bringing in a, a social work professional or referring a patient to community-based resources is, is a huge part of it. So kind of filling in some of those roles with, with bringing everyone kind of on the same page. So, so care coordination, med rack, patient education, those are all big parts of it. And there are still so, so many more that I haven't, we haven't even touched on. And it, a lot of this happens in, especially in like community-based health centers, where again, things are very nurse driven. You will have certain practices that have set up their, their procedures and have standing orders in place so that let's say a patient comes in to, you know, a community health center or primary care practice with symptoms of a UTI or a cold or the flu. You'll have, once you enter, you know, the person who does their intake, once you enter these symptoms, you get a set of standing orders for a urine screen, a urine culture, uh, all these different, you know, a flu, a flu screen, if, if that's what the symptoms are kind of pointing towards and allowing nurses to kind of follow these clinical algorithms that so many folks in informatics are working so hard on in a lot of these really low level visits, uh, vaccinations is another example that's not an acute illness necessarily that in many cases doesn't really require a provider oversight and in turn kind of frees up provider time to focus on some of those more complex patients and some of those issues and, and, and tasks that couldn't be done by another professional. So standing orders in place, I've even seen things for like medication titration, where let's say a patient comes in for their A1C to be screened. And this is a patient who's lived with diabetes for a long time and they're on insulin. They come in, they get their A1C screened. I've even seen places that have like decision trees where a nurse can read the A1C and follow the decision tree of where a patient's A1C was at last time versus this time, their current versus what should be their new insulin dose and titrate that medication, same thing with Coumadin, under a standing order that's signed by a physician or an NP or a PA or whoever that provider is. And, you know, again, freeing up time for, for providers to dig into some of those more complex cases. So there's so many different care models that a lot of different practices over the country have put into place, but there really isn't a standard way for us to measure them. And there isn't really a any kind of evidence on what works best for which patient populations. And so that's a huge focus of my research. I actually just submitted or resubmitted a research grant to NIH that, that focuses on filling in some of those gaps and knowledge and figuring out, you know, what kind of care models work for which patient populations and in which context. So I'm really excited about that. That's really interesting. It's also fascinating to think about where you mentioned informatics and where some of these like natural language processing type of algorithmic um, functions are going to work their way into health, you know, primary healthcare. Um, you mentioned titration as one example. Like if you if you were to be so bold as to extrapolate where we're at technologically now, five years into the future, I can almost see a an impetus for uh, 
a really expanded version of that because a lot of the kind of bread and butter primary care is fairly algorithmic. And then like you're saying, you can free up the providers to do that more complex detective work that they need to do for those patients who require that level of care. But for things that are fairly routine to yeah. not have the registered nurse who is trained to, to at least implement those things, take that on. I think I th that is really interesting to consider. You also mentioned, um, I liked the care coordination component a lot too, because what I see and feel free to tell me if you disagree with this, but the way you described it, I kind of see your vision of healthcare as a bunch of disconnected parts and it almost requires like a mediator between those parts. I feel like the RN is a beautiful mediator between some of those transitions in the healthcare system yeah, um, per what you were talking about. Absolutely. And in reality, you know, thinking of all these disjointed pieces, we kind of as a society think of primary care as being that central hub with every specialist or every other kind of provider being a spoke on that wheel. And in reality, the funding that primary care has just doesn't support that. Mm. You know, primary care gets 5% of all healthcare dollars, which for something that's considered to be the foundation of our entire system isn't really adding up. Uh, so much of our funding goes to, to inpatient care and to caring for patients who could have had that hospitalization avoided with good high quality outpatient care and strong care coordination. And, you know, you bring up informatics again, and, and that's, I think, a, a really critical part of it. You know, we have so many of these tools to help us make clinical decisions and help us, you know, think through algorithms. And really what it requires to kind of get there is Two things. Number one, you've got to have, you know, leadership of a health system that's really willing to be innovative and transformative and think about ways to implement these new care models and redesign policies and procedures to support that. Training staff to, to, to do that. And that's a huge lift. You know, that's not an easy ask for a busy, you know, struggling primary care practice to kind of upend their whole system. And on the other hand, you've got you've got the the tools, the the need to put those tools into place, and then you've got to have the the system level factors kind of lining up with that. You know, there's a number of billing codes that either are not at all incentivized by Medicare or reimburse very very small amounts. And care coordination is a really good example. You know, there's a number of care coordination billing codes under Medicare policy that are specifically designed for, let's say, two interprofessional team members to meet with a patient and family or three interprofessional team members to meet with a patient. And those codes just are literally not recognized by Medicare. And the ones that are, are like, you get, I think, a $40 reimbursement for 20 minutes of care management a month for a patient who meets certain criteria. And it's like, this is not where we should be investing. Instead, we've got a system that's very focused on payment for what we call diagnosis-related groups, DRGs. And 
these are codes that support care for a particular diagnosis or a particular illness. And those are important, but you're not incentivizing the delivery of specific improving or specific care improving activities, things that are known to improve the quality of care. And that we talk about all the time, like strong care coordination and communication and things that just are not really prioritized in in a current health system. It seems like one of the things that you're kind of hinting at is that the system is sort of set up, and I I know this is sort of a trope, but it's sort of set up to um, first diagnose people's problem, but then to do things to them to treat that problem. But there's a whole process of care that's sort of left out of it. It's almost like they've discretized into these DRGs, these sort of fundable little components, but the whole process of how people actually do these things, like educate themselves, coordinate care, you know, all of that is sort of left out of even the funding mechanisms. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's requiring a huge kind of system redesign that is not easy. And that I think a lot of folks in healthcare research and health policy are really pushing for. And my kind of goal is to generate that evidence that supports the implementation of these new care models and then work with with practices. I guess I would say it's my long-term vision to kind of implement these things and understand what the facilitators and barriers are. And then also changing some of these policies on a system level. You know, things like paying for care coordination is from a national standpoint, a pretty low level kind of ask, you know, literally just incentivizing some of these activities that are already happening, but just aren't being paid for. And so they're not happening to the extent that they should be happening. Again, especially for complex patients who have unmet social needs, who might have comorbid behavioral health conditions, or sort of a combination of of, of all of those things. And so supporting some of these care activities for for those folks is really a critical part of what I'm aiming to do in my work. Definitely. It's um, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you, uh, because I think this is such an important topic, but I also think it's heartening to see a nurse leading the effort on that front, because a lot of what we're talking about, these process-based components of care really are at the heart of what nursing is about. And it highlights both that it's really not a funded component of the U.S. healthcare system. Um, And we've always been, we've always kind of struggled to find like, how can we bill for nursing related services? For example, like, how do you bill for the process of care? It's sort of the same as asking like, you know, how is nursing fitting into this in, instead of just in this subservient, you know, implementing medical care kind of way, I really like that you are taking this more to the forefront of how can we truly integrate nursing care and the process into these different mechanisms. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, I think you're hitting on just such a critical point. And I think this is a, a huge question that doesn't really have one clear cut solution is how do we pay for nursing care. And in the hospital, and, you know, this is true in a lot of other settings as well, we, you know, we don't bill for nursing services. Those those services get wrapped up into a facility fee or room and board charge. And they're kind of seen as part of, like you said, the process of care. 
And because of that, nursing is seen as a labor expense that should be cut wherever possible. And that's Mm -hmm. why you're constantly seeing now, I think more than ever in the post-COVID era that we're in or post the height of COVID era, because we're still really not post-COVID at all, is all of these nursing labor unions going on strike and demanding better staffing ratios because hospitals and health systems are really on paper kind of struggling to stay in the black of of their budget and cutting nursing services is kind of the first thing that that tends to go you know workforce is the biggest piece of any hospital or any healthcare organization's operating budget and when those things are not seen as improving not only improving care, but improving the financial revenue of a, of a healthcare organization, it's going to be on the chopping block. And so one of the, the things that I and my colleagues are really advocating for is not necessarily to start billing for every single nursing service that we deliver. You know, we don't, I don't know if we really want to go down the route of adding to one, adding to this fee for service kind of system that we're in that we already know disadvantages a lot of people, but also really redefining what our profession is and and the roots of where nursing kind of comes from by tying it up in what services do we deliver that are reimbursable. So I don't know if that's necessarily the answer. In some cases, like I mentioned, care coordination, it might be helpful, but really looking at the whole picture of what care do nurses deliver that is going to improve a hospital's or any healthcare organization of primary care practices revenue in what way? So is that delivering high quality care that keeps patients out of the hospital and a primary care practice gets uh, reimbursement for that under new value-based care payment models that focus on patient outcomes? Is that with satisfaction scores, right? Uh, These things that make up a huge part of value-based purchasing in hospitals. And we know that nursing care is one of the biggest things that drives patient satisfaction and that nurses are the most, we say, you know, for over 20 years have been the most trusted professionals. So how is it that nursing care can improve the financial revenue of an organization and improve patient outcomes. So really, how is it that nursing care improves the value? What is the value of nursing care from a cost standpoint and a patient outcome standpoint? Right. So we don't want to... the case of a cost effectiveness and thinking about how can we, you know, leverage these professionals again so that you're not being wasteful in your 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 operating budget. So if you're hiring a nurse in a primary care practice and they're not practicing to the full extent of their education and training, you're not really paying for a nurse. You're, you're, you're paying a nurse's salary to do the role of a different professional, a medical assistant perhaps. And that's, that can be fiscally wasteful. So looking at that whole picture of how can we leverage nurses to improve value rather than view the nursing workforce as an expense that should be cut. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think the idea that um, RNs and primary care are sort of like glorified medical assistants is the kind of running. Um, I think that's the way people 
currently view that situation, which I think is unfortunate for all the reasons you mentioned so far today. But I think um, there's something about this sort of value-based, like what are nurses able to bring versus what are they being used for differentiation that you've brought to bear. I think that's super important. And, you know, of course, there's it's nothing against medical assistants are very important professionals and they've they've been extraordinarily useful in the system. I think they're very helpful for patients, but the training is just different. And I think implicit in their widespread use in primary care is sort of undervalues what nurses could bring to the table in primary care. And maybe there's a role for both. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There definitely is. And, and delineating that is a huge opportunity for, for practices to maximize the clinical resources that they have. I have two more questions for you, if I may. Yeah. Um, the first one's a little bit more technical. I'm curious in the work that you do, and I can imagine that this really depends on the types of methods that you're using. Are there specific challenges that you've noticed methodologically in your area of expertise that you feel needs to be further teased out? Are there research designs that you particularly like or that people are using that you don't like? Like what are the big kind of methodological challenges in your specific area that you've come across? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I would say a lot of the work that I do, I try to incorporate to some extent a mixed methods component. So mm-hmm. I will do, you know, quantitative analyses and then use qualitative interviews or focus groups to kind of explore those a little bit more. But I would say a lot of the challenges that I see and some of what we're talking about, especially on the quantitative side, come from just a, a, a lack of data and a lack of clear understanding of what a, what kind of roles a nurse would really perform, right? There isn't really an understanding of what nurses do in primary care settings. And we don't really have the data on a really large scale to, to kind of answer that question. So to kind of give you an example. So in hospitals, we know what nurses do. We know what a nurse's role is in a hospital. And so we can study how things like, say, staffing ratios and strong work environments and all of these factors that impact nursing care delivery are going to impact patient outcomes because we know we can theoretically say like, okay, well, if a nurse's role is to provide care for X number of patients on a given shift, we can say that adding this additional workload is going to spread this person pretty thin. In primary care, it's a totally different ballgame because the you don't have the same questions of, of safe staffing and how many patients you see on a given shift just because the role looks really different, but we haven't really teased out what that role is. And again, we don't really have the data as of yet to do so. So a lot of what I'm doing now is trying to bridge that gap. The The, the center that I'm finishing at my postdoc for now is kind of known nationally and internationally for their large scale surveys of, of nurses. And so some context for you know almost 30 years now we have collected surveys of nurses who you know it started as just in Pennsylvania and then it expanded to Pennsylvania and New Jersey and California and Florida and it's, we're now up to 10 different states where we send out these surveys to registered nurses 
and ask them questions about their work environment, patient care, how many patients they cared for on their last shift, their levels of burnout. You know, we use all of these validated measures to get a sense of nursing care delivery in their institution. And we ask them to provide us with the name and the address of their employer. And what the, the, the reason that that's so important is that we approach these nurses in our surveys kind of directly. Uh, nurses will get these surveys either mailed to their homes or now in their email. And we do that in partnership with the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, but we do that so we don't go through an organization. So if we go through a hospital, if, if a hospital perceives themselves as a low performer in some of these measures, they may be disinclined to share that survey with their staff. And so we get kind of a sampling bias there. So with that in mind, we do these surveys, we go to nurses, we ask them these questions. And for the longest time, when we collected these surveys, we did so on paper. You know, we would mail them to their houses and we get these you know, mail responses back. Now with, you know, the internet kind of being how everyone does everything, we've started sending out these surveys electronically. And what that allows us to do is that allows us to tailor the questions that a nurse receives in their survey based on where they identify their place of employment as. So back when we would just do paper surveys, the surveys themselves would be very focused on hospital-based care because that was going to be the majority of our respondents. So questions like, how many patients did you care for on your last shift? Um, what is your you know, staffing ratio? How often do you miss care items like doing oral care for critically ill patients or ambulating patients or all these things, the documentation because of your, your patient load or your workload? And we weren't really asking these questions in a way that that was relevant to nurses who worked in a primary care practice or a different setting. And so now that we're doing this electronically, I'm really focused on collecting data on, for those nurses who identify themselves as primary care nurses, identifying, okay, how do you spend your time? What percentage of your time do you spend doing these nursing tasks versus these more clerical tasks versus documentation or triage or all these different things? And I am really looking forward to kind of looking at that data and saying, okay, here's where nurses are spending most of their time. And because we know where a nurse is employed, we have their the employer's name and address, we can connect data that nurses report to patient outcomes from that organization using Medicare data. So we will say, let's say in a hospital, we you know, get data from, let's say, five to 10 nurses. It's usually a lot more than that. We average out what the number of patients per shift was for med surge or an ICU unit. And then we can connect that with data from Medicare and say, okay, well, we are seeing a relationship between hospitals where nurses are caring for fewer patients per shift or better nurse to patient ratios. We see in those hospitals that once you control for everything else, that patients are less likely to die, they're less likely to be readmitted, and they're going to have better outcomes after they leave the hospital. We've been able to do all of that work. And so my hope now is to be able to bring that into primary care, but it does require kind of building an infrastructure of saying, of, of just making the case that nursing care in this setting does 
matter mm. because we know that it matters in hospitals and we know what it matters that it matters in all of these other settings because we know what they're doing and we recognize the value of that work. So we're not really seeing that quite yet in primary care, but I'm hoping that with some of this new survey data that we're getting in that I'm going to be able to bridge that gap a little bit. That's very cool. Um, I appreciate you also preempting my next question was what will you be doing about that, which um, you just answered for me. I think it's really awesome that you are setting up these kind of pipelines for yourself too. It, you know, there really is this dearth of data. And if you have a lack of data, you can't really generate the answers that you need until you have the data. So um, I really, I think that the work you're doing is very important. Um, one of the things I would like to very briefly touch on too, as we're coming up on time is there was a recent uh, cross-sectional study published in the UK by, um, she wasn't the lead author, but a friend of mine who was on the podcast, Dr. Anne-Marie Rafferty, uh, was a co-author on this paper that showed that when you tried to replace RNs in the National Health Service in the UK um, with techs, you had a 9% increased uh, mortality rate um, from patients in the hospital system. And I just have this uh, sense that if you were to look at something similar over here in the primary care setting, had you had the data to do such an analysis, you would see that there's a striking importance of RNs in primary health care that, that has been maybe overlooked for decades. And of course, I know that that's, a, that's yeah, an extrapolation no, we can't make, but... Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're bringing a great point. And we have actually, in hospitals, looked at similar questions of what's being dubbed by a lot of health systems as team nursing, where uh, in some hospitals, an RN will oversee four CNAs who mm. are doing patient care and, and using that as a way to kind of cut registered nursing staff and maybe hire more CNAs who are not as expensive to a hospital. And we've seen that that doesn't work and that the outcomes for patients in hospitals that take on those models are not as good as those who just have better nurse staffing ratios. So hmm. some of these, these kind of models that hospitals are putting forth that are predominantly focused on cutting costs don't take into account the fact that nursing care does indeed matter. And so to bring that, I think, to primary care, my goal is really to make the case with this new survey data that or that primary care practices that use nurses in some of these more advanced roles, my, I would hypothesize that those practices are going to see better patient outcomes. They're going to have fewer patients readmitted because you do have someone who's responsible for things like care coordination and med rec and transitional care planning. And so making that case my, I guess, long-term goal is to kind of develop that evidence that nursing care and primary care does matter, and then taking it away is going to therefore impact patient outcomes for the negative. Certainly. Um, Jackie, what is the immediate next step for you in terms of your next research initiative? And then do you have kind of a longer-term vision for what you see ultimately um, your objectives yeah. being? 
I think so. So uh, hot off the press, I just accepted a faculty position at Emory University in the School of Nursing to kind of continue this work. Uh, they have a brand new nursing workforce center, and, and I'm really excited to, to kind of help shape that and bridge some of my collaborations at, at Penn and at Emory together and, and kind of tap into these different resources. So that's really, really exciting. And I would say, you know, I plan on continuing this work and, and long-term, I think the goal that I would envision would be to get to a point where I've developed this evidence enough that practices and health systems are seeing the value of nursing care in primary care and really just rethink of what we see as a nurse's role. You know, we tend to think as a society that nurses are mostly in hospitals and that's how we educate and train nurses. But there is a huge dearth of nurses in a lot of these settings. There's a ton of workforce challenges. And as care is going into the community, you know, we need that pipeline. So then building up education programs around that, training nurses who are in their baccalaureate degree programs to be prepared for some of these careers in primary care and other community-based settings. Uh, working with with practices to kind of implement some of these new policies and structures to utilize nurses in some of these higher level roles. So developing the evidence enough that I can actually start to implement it in in the real world, I think would be my long term goal. And I'm hoping some of my implementation science training can can help me do that. But you know, for now, it really is just making the case and building up the evidence and working towards that that ultimate let's you know ability to make that change wonderful jackie of course thank you so much for joining me today it's been a delight to talk to you thank you so much for having me